Hello and welcome to another edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. Our topic today is going to make you crazy. Here's where I'm going to start. There are over 12 million rules in Canada that guide our life or our businesses. The only thing that's going to make you feel any better is that in the United States, there are 105.4 million rules. Of course, they are 10 times our size. Our guest today calls it a hoarding disorder. Diagnosis Red Tape. That's the name of the book. Joe Carson uh, was a civil servant for more than 40 years, working in all levels of government. He's also a professional accountant. And he has written this book, Diagnosis Red Tape, A Fading Trust in the Administration of Government. He's also founded, not surprisingly, a consulting business, Everything Red Tape, in which he's going to help academics and businesses try to figure out all of this stuff. What a great thing to do, Joe. Welcome and thank you for writing the book. Well, thank you, Pamela. It's, uh, thank you for the nice comments. And yes, <laughs> it's it's a bit of a problem. It is a problem. Okay, literally, when you call it a hoarding disorder, explain what you mean. What Governments are actually hoarding rules and regulations. Well, it, it, essentially, uh, when, when you first look at a rule, if you will, let's break it down. Um, governments create rules to implement public policy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when the rule is not needed or is inefficient, it becomes red tape. So every rule has the possibility of containing some, if not a lot, of red tape. Now, when you take that, uh, what, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You take that uh, possibility and multiply it by 12.1 million, you get a, a bit of a problem. So um, what, what I say about hoarding disease is quite simply this is that there are two kinds of rules, what are called black letter rules. Yep. These are rules that you can find in legislation and regulation. They contain phrases such as you shall, you must, you are required to. And, and that's part of, of the administration of government. However, governments uh, almost universally create what are called non-black letter rules. These are the policies, these are the programs, these are the forms, these are the directives, the minister's orders that essentially add to or the de add to the detail of a particular piece of legislation. Now, unfortunately, these non-black letter rules are not vetted the same way as right. legislative policy. And so what happens over time, government has become very used to creating non-black letter rules to make their life easier and they've added they've added they've added and they have been very reticent to remove uh unneeded or inefficient rules because uh if you look at the clinical definition of hoarding disease yeah. <laughs> people get upset when you take things away and <laughs> that's why i called it hoarding disease in government because they continue to add control on our lives without removing it. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's so accurate. I sat for a while on something called the Rules and Regulation Committee. It's a joint committee of the Senate and the House. And I think we've seen this tendency grow. We're just going through it with pieces of legislation all the time now where 
the legislation is kind of bare bones. And then they say all the details will be sorted out in the regulations. And then they go and make up a bunch of regulations, which actually allows them to do what they couldn't do legislatively. Uh, and so it has to sit there because it's actually the definition of the so-called public policy that they set out to implement. The, 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 there's nothing wrong with public policy development, but when um, elected officials uh, receive a piece of potential legislation, they're actually receiving a document that ties one hand behind their back. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they're presented with the, the uh, decision that essentially does not contain how it will be implemented, how it will be administered, or the costs related to that. So they're making a decision, like I said, with one hand tied behind their yeah. back. And just imagine as a person, if you wanted to buy a house and you didn't know the cost of it, but went ahead anyway, <laughs> kind of has a bit of a risk to it. Yeah, that that would be uh, that would be a high risk venture, particularly these days. You know, I went and looked up when I was uh, finished reading your book, and I went online and I just you know typed in red tape, and up came a a piece from um, Syracuse University, who and this fellow was trying to figure out the like why the red tape side of this equation actually happens, and he says that ironically red tape was kind of invented these rules and regulations of course were invented to assure government accountability to make sure that <laughs> i thought you might have that reaction but it's it's just now it's now it's not got anything to do with that anymore it's quite you know, the, the the why is quite simply um well i had a i had a conversation a couple of years ago with a court of king's bench justice yeah. And and he put it succinctly, government has no appetite to change. And <laughs> if you think about it, Pamela, um, right. it's a system. The current system is a system government created, government's familiar with, government can manage less than full transparency-wise, and unfortunately, it's a system that so very few people really understand. Yeah, including those in it. Yes. Uh, yeah, and there is. You you have given some really interesting examples. Some of them are in Saskatchewan because that's where you worked and that's where you are. But but you make a point of saying this applies to all levels of government everywhere. We're not just targeting Ottawa or Regina or or the Wadena, you know, municipality, uh, the mayors there, that this is a problem everywhere. You wrote um about, for example, restaurants. 50% of which don't last more than five years in this country, and that's not even counting COVID and, and the, the death toll there uh, on small businesses. But I think I've got the number right. This was a situation in Regina, 1,427 rules from eight ministries or departments, and that doesn't count provincial or municipal rules. No, that's okay. a little bit... A little bit off. It's it's provincial rule. The, the number is provincial okay. rules, and that doesn't include the municipal or federal rules. Or federal. Okay, I got it backwards. Okay. And and it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that particular industry, Pamela, because just yesterday, actually, uh, there was a Global News article 
about archaic liquor laws smothering BC bars and restaurants. Right. And and quite simply, it's a policy where where if you want as a business to order a special liquor, you still have to go through the government agency, but you have to order a case of it at a time. You may only want a bottle. Right. Sample or try a, a particular new drink or something. And and yet it's government that's basically killing your business. Yeah. And and forcing behavior didn't you didn't really choose. But what like why would we need fourteen hundred rules about a restaurant? Is this food safety? Is this the size of the bathrooms? How many forks and knives you have to have? Like how is government getting itself into the detail of running a small business? That's a great question, Pamela. And I think it goes back to actually one of the main reasons red tape exists is the siloed mentality of government. You have every ministry, every department, every agency wanting to um, resolve their own operational issues. So they don't bother going out and consulting and seeing if somebody else is already doing this. Right. They create more rules to solve their problem that impact the same business. And and this is, I mean, we see this all the time. There's no consultation or very little consultation with the people directly affected. They They consult other government departments, but they don't talk to the gun owner or the farmer. And and I went, and that's one of the the if the big three if you want to call it that causes red tape um, consultation with those impacted by this by the rule has to become much much more complete. It's yeah. just not happening. And legitimate, like you have to not only consult but then listen. Yes, listen. It, it, it's interesting, actually. It was this type of consultation that. Led me down this path, for lack of a better word. Back in 2013, the government reviewed the alcohol control regulations in Saskatchewan. Optically, yeah. it was a great success. However, from a red tape reduction perspective, there were red flags blowing up all over the place. It, it Expl was, explain. Well, the first is, yes, they did consultation, but all the questions focused on the policy behind the regulations, not the implementation and administration of the regulations. So they missed that completely. Number two, they uh, I was approached and asked, well, how did you know, how can you prove that the work done here will actually make life better quantifiably, i.e. the numbers, do the numbers work? And they were right at the time. There was no standardized approach to costing. Uh, that was corrected. And, and implemented in Saskatchewan. But the third and most scariest part, as it turns out, was a lot of the changes that were made, Pamela, were two policies. Up until that time, there was very little notice of the effect of what, again, I mentioned non-black letter regulations. Yeah. There was no, no focus on that at all. And as it turns out, non-black letter regulation or rules uh, equal the amount of rules that are actually in legislation and regulation. You know, this week we can make a, a joke about some of it, but as I was thinking about that, this whole issue, I mean, we sit here in our offices in Ottawa and I get calls every day from 
Ukrainians, from Afghans, from people who are trying, who we have said, and we've publicly said, you're living in horrific conditions. We're going to open our arms and bring you here or to the Afghans because they served alongside our force forces uh, on the ground, risking their lives. And then we bind them up in all this red tape. Um, so it has real life and death consequences sometimes. Without a doubt. It's interesting you mentioned uh, new Canadians. Um, I spent 25 years in a second career teaching post-secondary education. And a lot of my students were new Canadians. And it baffled them. I'll be honest with you. A lot of the rules baffled them. Yeah. We say come here and that's not how their systems work. How much of this is is reflected reflective of the ideology of the day. I mean, just for for rough, you know, Democrats want more government, Republicans want less, liberals like more government, conservatives like less. Is it got to do with that or is it taken on a life of its own? It absolutely has nothing to do with that. Uh, in the book, I, I point actually to the American election of 2020, where roughly 150 million people split their votes right down the middle. Yep. Half wanting lower taxes and less government, half wanting uh, more help to 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 um, the democratic approach of of more help by government, and both of those approaches, Pamela, from a red tape perspective, are wrong. They 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 uh, the the de democratic approach of more government. Well, that's self defining. More government means more rules. More rules means more red tape. Um, the Democratic or the excuse me, the Republican approach um, talks to uh, less government intervention, uh, lower taxes. However, by moving the problem from a federal level to each state doing their own thing, you are then creating 52 times as much opportunity for red tape. So there is no winner in this debate. There is no political ideology that is better than any other when it comes to administration and implementation, Pamela. It's a really interesting point. When you were referencing the, the new Canadians baffled and puzzled by this, is this, is this a kind of an advanced democracy issue? I mean, do we see it more in the Western nations than we do in the developing world? Uh, I, like China, I know, not a developing world. Well, on some level it is, but, you know, huge bureaucracies there too it's uh, that, that's a very good question you know in the book I, I approached it this way um democracy is still the best form of governance right I don't care what people say I have no problem with with uh, majority rules as long as there's complete transparency and accountability. And those are the two things that are missing in our dem democracy today. Um, there is what I call a 51% solution perspective in government today. As long as I can get 51% of the vote, I will create public policy in that direction. Anytime you do that from an accounting perspective, 49% of noncompliance is kind of an issue. You are not creating the most effective, efficient solution. So we, we have to do a better job being inclusive. Um, and you do that by treating 
those that administer government the same way government is expecting us to comply as people. That if if there are mandatory rules that we must follow, uh, uh, there should be mandatory principles that they must follow in the development and administration of the rules. Yeah, it's a, it should be a two way street. You've really you've raised this interesting point too about you know the fifty one forty nine that you you do risk um, levels of lack of compliance. We call it the shadow economy. Uh, people do things outside the rules. You know, unfortunately, um, I I had the opportunity when I was with the Ministry of Finance to be Saskatchewan's representative to the Federal Provincial Underground Economy Workgroup. And the impact of the shadow economy or underground economy is very significant and is growing quickly. And I believe um, as money gets tighter, people have to make decisions. Do I comply with the law or don't I? And, and unfortunately, if we continue along this approach of of uh, the way things are today, it's only going to get bigger, Pamela. Yeah, because people will make those decisions. And, and we've seen it in tougher times before that people start to exchange goods or they pay in cash under the table and it and it works for both, uh, you know, the the person doing the job, doing the work and, and the person paying. It saves everybody a bit of money because taxes are constantly going up to pay for the administration of all these rules. It's kind of a catch-22. I really wish it, it did, but unfortunately, well, they do go up, and I agree with you 100% there. Unfortunately, the debt of both Canada and the U.S. is kind of skyrocketing as well, and that kind of yeah. shows that we're living beyond our means. Yeah. Yeah, there's the accountant coming out in you too, that, that we need to uh, straighten that out. You know, there were other examples that you used that were you know, really interesting to me, um, the talking about prohibition, uh, and, you know, uh, I went to high school in Moose Jaw, so there were all the stories of Al Capone running booze underground and on the railway and all of those things, but that we tend to use rules to restrict, um, uh, access, I guess, rather than reducing demand that there's kind of a, a problem with how we approach problems. Um, I tend to look at decisions as, is the information complete in order to make the proper decision? Now, you, you raised the, the, the example of prohibition. That was put into the book for two reasons. To show yep. how when uh, enforcement costs are not considered in part of the decision-making process, they right. can very negatively impact the bottom line of the government. But what I didn't include in the book is I uh, wanted a little bit of uh, searching done on the part of the reader. The, the prohibition decision in the U.S. was the result of two organizations, the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christians Temperance Union, which today right. is MAD, getting together to create the Prohibition Party and kind of put the bug in the uh, government's ear to create this piece of legislation. What I find just totally ironic, though, is that particular party represented 2% of the population of the United States, and they were able to create that type of situation 
um, that had proper consultation been done across the board, that would have never seen the light of day, I, I believe. But that's exactly what we're seeing growing, that it's about the powerful lobby. Even if you only represent 2% of the population or 5% of the population, if you've got powerful lobbying, you can impact government. You're exactly correct. And you com combat that quite simply by, um, like I said, complete transparency, but also yeah. accountability, making people who decide that they want to support that 5% of the population responsible for that decision. You know, and in business all of, all the time, restaurants included, if you don't make the bottom line, you don't stay in business. Well, I think we have to change the approach in government to kind of uh, create an accountability focus on government to make effective, efficient decisions. I think you've you've raised this issue, which is governments, and again at all levels, must clarify who's responsible for every one of those 12 million rules, and then they can be accountable, right? Then I know the guy that's in charge of that one, and I'm going to phone and say, what's up? This is nuts. You're absolutely correct. There, there's an example in the book that is kind of humorous, uh, that being the... Uh... And then again, it goes back to the alcohol control regulation review in yeah. 2013, where it was determined the liquor and gaming agency uh, controlled the number of washrooms in a restaurant or bar, which makes sense. You go to the bathroom yeah. when you drink. But <laughs> what we found out in looking at the legislation is they had no authority to do that. Well, we decided to go looking where it was. And what we found out, there was two other government agencies in Saskatchewan and one municipally that also regulated the number of washrooms in a bar. And all the numbers weren't the same, Pamela. So, yeah, so everything was contradictory. Yeah. Yep. So this is, we end up, the other thing that was, I don't know, troubling, but amusing uh, on some level, the disposal of government property. All of the things they own, old desks, old cars, um, computers, anything that comes out of residences. And, and the cost, again, it goes to that point, the cost of creating a set of rules to make sure nothing goes wrong means it's costing them way more than the, the, the hangers from the office are worth. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely correct there. I, there is one instance. Um, with regards to Saskatchewan, where um, although I could not find the documentation for it from talking to people, the uh, Northern uh, Urban and Rural Municipalities Acts uh, were an, originally enacted after a whopping 40 years of consultation. So you tell me uh, how much that cost, please. Right. So you're you're absolutely correct. We're we're spinning our wheels, spending our dollars, and nothing's coming productive. Well, there's there's just no productivity related to it. Well, I had my own experience with it when I was in New York, Consul General in New York. You you have an apartment there. You're you're duty bound to entertain and to have meetings and whatnot. But the furniture had to come to Canada, and then when I left, then the furniture had to go back to Canada. When you can actually buy furniture in New York, um, 
and and then sell it if you really want to change it. I mean, it just when you see those kinds of, you know, as you say, bureaucratic rules, it is it makes you angry. But to go back to the very title of your book, it actually does erode trust in government, because when you look at this stuff and say, this makes no sense, you've got to then say to yourself, what else are they doing that makes no sense? Well, I I think it boils down to the one thing I'd like to leave your listeners is this. For every rule that governments create, whether it's needed or whether it mutates into red tape, you pay twice. Once in the time, effort, and money you spend to comply with that rule, and once in the taxes, fees, and charges you pay to government to administer that rule. So that's, when you say a fading trust, when money gets tight and they do things that you've mentioned, as many examples, it's just, I'm sorry, but people stop, stop trusting government. Well, the other thing is, and you know, I, I I'm sure when you with, with your consulting business to try and explain to people when you're running a small business, there must be this question every day: Why is that rule there? It makes no sense. It it doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing, which is putting food on a plate and putting it in front of customers in a restaurant or whatever the case may be. Um, it just that too kind of erodes. Uh, the way people look at those in charge? Well, it's, I guess it's just uh, the, the thing that time is finite. And the more time you have to spend on the rules, the less time you have to put food on that plate or to have an education or to have a life. Yeah. Joe, it's a really, um, I think you've done a good service here to make people stop and think about this. And, and maybe we do need to ask a few more questions because we've got lots of rules in place that are still every time there's a crisis like the pandemic or whatever, then rules go into place and then we don't even undo those. Um, you know, never mind the silly ones. But anyway, it's worth a read. It's a very good uh, diagnosis red tape of feeding trust in the administration of government. There it is. Joe Carson speaking to us today from beautiful Saskatchewan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pamela. Very much appreciated. Yeah, great to talk with you. So that's it for this edition of No Nonsense. We'll talk again soon.